0: I mean, there were students who were real high flyers coming in, and there were students who were struggling with basic literacy, right? I mean, it was that incredible gamut, Um, uh, hugely diverse, racially, ethnically. um, And I was sort of bitten by the bug and found the mission of community college to be super important. Um, I did work at a four-year institution between there and my current job, but I, I have a real passion for community colleges and the potential we have, which we do not always live up to, but the potential we have to really open doors for people for whom the doors really are largely closed.
1: Hello and welcome to Student Affairs Now. I'm your host, Susana Munoz. Today on the podcast, we're discussing community colleges, why they're important, and what the future holds for community colleges. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We hope you'll find these conversations make a contribution to the field and are restorative to the profession. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Find us at studentaffairsnow.com or on Twitter. This episode is brought to you by two of our sponsors, Anthology and EverFi. As I mentioned, I'm your host, Susana Munoz. My pronouns are she, her, her, hers, ella. I'm broadcasting from Fort Collins, Colorado near the campus of Colorado State University. CSU occupies the ancestral homeland of the Cheyenne, Arapaho, and youth people. From wherever you're listening today, we urge you to investigate the original occupants of the land. I am thrilled to have the following individuals present for today's conversation. Let me introduce our panelists. Today joining me are uh, John Hernandez, Ebony Zamani-Gallagher, and Case Willoughby. As each of you introduce yourself to our listeners, please tell us a little bit about your interest in community colleges and how you're entering into the conversation. Let's start with John.
2: Well, hello, Susanna. Um, Thank you for having me. Um, My preferred pronouns are he, him, his, el, my interest in community colleges, frankly, started as a community college student. I've always felt extremely proud of being a product, uh, particularly of the California community college system. And I feel that that experience is probably what triggered uh, you know, genuine commitment and passion for this work, particularly at the community college. Uh, First-generation immigrant, and like many of our students that come from that background, education was something that was instilled um, in my home, and it became almost uh, a way to fulfill the dreams and the aspirations of my parents. And part of the reason for coming to this country was to provide for better opportunities and um, it really helps me I think to understand the impact of a college education and the role it has in providing economic mobility, um, you know, open doors of opportunity and professionally, uh, while I've had experience at both four-year public and community colleges, uh, the majority now of my experience is in the California community college system. Um, I'm currently at Irvine Valley College, finishing my first year. Um, What a year to come into a new position as president. Uh, it, It is my second presidency. And before that, I was vice president of student services for 11 years. And I've always been drawn to the open access mission of the community college. Um, So, you know, it, it attracts from the most highly talented student to that student that just needs a second opportunity and a fresh start. And we have such a multifaceted mission, whether it's transfer, certificates, associate, workforce preparation and training, adult education. So I feel that it truly meets the needs of our community, which is, I think, why that community in front of college is so meaningful and significant.
3: Thank you. Let's hear from Ebony. Sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, My pronouns are she, her, and hers. Uh, And I'm at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Here I am director for our Office for Community College uh, Research and Leadership, otherwise known as OCCRL. Also faculty member in uh, educational policy organization and leadership and Part of how I come into this space and place or this conversation in terms of uh, community colleges is, um, have a lot of, uh, overlap with John in many regards. Uh, my first exposure to post-secondary education, uh, was community colleges in a sense, um, kind of trailing behind my mom as she was a return to learn, um, person. And, uh, and then also coming full circle with that. And that I had a college um going culture in my in my home. And so there was a certain expectancy, though my parents did not have college degrees, uh that uh that I would, right? And so I I think that for me, what was attractive, um, you know, similar to what John mentioned about the multiple missions, but I, I felt that what really spoke to me was uh at the time that I discovered community colleges. I saw reflections of self, um, you know, as I was reading about the colleges and this whole notion of the people's colleges and democracy's doors and uh, very passionate about the trajectories of black and brown folk in particular, and then finding out that a critical mass of us as we enter post-secondary are not at the door seals of institutions like Illinois, but at community colleges. And so how do we help uh, students to navigate more um, open systems, um, you know, to more selective ones and think about how the community colleges are a game changer and foundational um, for further education, um, gainful employment, and just enhancement of, you know, one's overall mobility. Um, So that's basically what got me. Thank you. Okay.
0: So, As everyone has said, Susan, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. And when I found out I was going to be on a panel with John Hernandez and Edney Samani Gallagher, I was just kind of tickled. Um, So my name is Case Willoughby, pronounce he, him. I currently serve as the Vice President for Student Affairs and Enrollment Management at Butler County Community College. We are in western Pennsylvania and our north of Pittsburgh. I have uh, a bit of a bizarre career trajectory that kind of landed me in community colleges, and I'm, I'm... extremely grateful, but it was not expected. Um, so uh, I'm the product of kind of high, highly selective study schools and was working at Columbia University. Um, and also part, although I have like the higher ed degrees kind of thing, I also did a degree in Hispanic civilization out of pure joy and love and and it was in Spain. And at my time at Columbia, there was an opportunity that appeared at this little school called um, Hostos Community College in the South Bronx. It was a transitional bilingual public community college literally built to serve the Puerto Rican community. Um, that was when it was built, that was who was in the South Bronx. The demographics did change. Uh, and I kind of took a leap of faith and it sounded fascinating. And I kind of believed in the mission of community colleges and the position seemed right. and they wanted um you know i knew some students would would be um spanish speakers and i spoke spanish and i kind of took this leap and it was the most extraordinary mind bending welcoming affirming challenging experience where i met students who had extraordinary aspirations had this incredible diversity of preparation. I mean, there were students who were real high flyers coming in and there were students who were struggling with basic literacy, right? I mean, it was that incredible gamut, Um, uh, hugely diverse racially, ethnically. um, And I was sort of bitten by the bug and found the mission of community college to be super important. Um, I did work at a four-year institution between there and my current job. But I I have a real passion for community colleges and the potential we have, which we do not always live up to, but the potential we have to really open doors for people for whom the doors really are largely closed.
1: Uh, Thank you for that. I see there's like a a theme happening in terms of definitely having um, sort of this culturally um, centered um, environment, but also the self-reflection of self um, in community colleges. I, um, I, n- I did not attend a community college, but I am a parent of a student in community college currently. So that was one of the reasons why, um, she decided to choose, you know, where she's at is the self-reflection. So I was happy to hear that. Um, so first, what I want to ask is, you know, what role should or do community colleges play in the field of higher education? And that's a very broad question, but I wanted to see how do you, how do you want to? um tackle sort of like what what um you know what what is the primary role that they they should be doing within our field. Um, Ebony, do you want
3: to get started? Sure, sure thing. I think there's a critical role of community colleges. I mean, you know, for me at least, uh again, part of the attraction in terms of thinking about this, this segment of of uh post secondary was, you know, um, and as Case mentioned, um, there's so much promise. There's peril, but there's promise. And the promise was that, you know, post secondary shouldn't just be about the elite. It shouldn't just be about perpetuating elite interests. Um, and so Community colleges really are a time where what was ushered in was a massification of of higher education. Not to say that there still wasn't segmented opportunities or stratification occurring, um, but that, um, you know, again, there was this this kind of um, sense that um, people should have the opportunity to have an on-ramp. And that for some communities, um, if it were not for the community college, there would be no post-secondary. Opportunity, right? And so uh in that sense there's a, a critical role. Um community colleges, and I liked how John put some emphasis on the fact that um community is key in just the whole way of framing, even though we have seen trending um institutions seeking to drop community from their name, right? That's a whole nother conversation. Uh, but when we think about how they're nested within their local communities and the extent to which, uh, again, this critical role as it relates to, um, local industry needs, workforce development, um, within the community, but that has ripple effects, um, for a state, for a region, um, in terms of not just the kind of academic programming side, but the skills and the trade side of it uh the extent to which community colleges can provide the multiple entry points, um, especially if they're doing stackability well for students to come in and to get micro credentials, then another certificate have articulation um, between these various certificates that um, can then lend themselves to degree completion and then still opportunities for more on-ramps, right, in terms of um, baccalaureate. Um, or even in California, post-baccalaureate. They are transfer pathways to graduate education mm-hmm. um, that we see being played out um, with the um, the CSU systems, UCLA, Berkeley, they're doing that. And so I think that community colleges have remained, um, you know, like the sleeper hit, if you will. We talk about when it's summer movie time and talk about sleeper hit. I think that that's community, American community colleges. It is a uniquely... Um, You know, American invention, um, one that has served as a prototype uh, for tertiary education, you know, beyond the U.S. And they play a a core role in our educational system, so much so that, honestly, they could arguably be the centerpiece. Um, And we've seen, you know, this play out when it was the Great Recession. Um, you know, the, the American Graduation Initiative. It was launched from the, the steps of a community college. And uh, then President Obama said, you know, we don't get to 60, 25 or 20, you know, 30 without really engaging with and elevating and understanding the, the critical role of community colleges. Thank you.
0: So one thing I'd like to... I've... I'd like to add is, is just, you know, and he uh, certainly touched on this. It's just that notion of access, right? So our price point is usually the lowest game in town. Um, it It is largely, not exclusively, we're largely commuter institutions. So that really saves costs for folks who are thinking, you know, every, you know, just add $15,000, $20,000 if you're thinking about a residence hall experience. And although those can be beneficial, I agree, those can also be prohibitive. So where we really succeed is providing access to people within our geography. uh, And that can be hugely important. Um, We do not always have the records of student success we would like, and that is something we work on. And I think we're getting better at, but that's the next piece because letting people in and then having them leave possibly with debt or out of credential may not be serving them. And that's important to consider too.
2: I, I, I loved a couple of things that were said I'm going to piggyback on. Um, the access mission I mentioned has always been something that drew me to the community college system. <clears throat> but we all know that access without achievement fails our students. And the community college, and I'm going to speak from a California community college perspective, which has 116 community colleges, over 2.1 million students. I think something like one in four community college students nationally are attend a California community college. And we are the most diverse segment of higher education. It is, I love that on-ramp um, metaphor. It's it, in my opinion, community college should be the first stop, whether you're a traditional or non-traditional student for so many reasons. Where I think, uh, so, so I think we've done the access mission extremely well, where we are all putting special focus and attention is on ensuring that we're not leaving any students behind and that we are designing our learning environments that's designed for success and we have so many um, statewide initiatives, college-specific initiatives to narrow down the opportunity gaps to ensure that we are truly meeting the needs of the students that we have. And for many, it is a transfer mission and it is a transfer focus. And we have so many educational partnerships with our four-year schools. Uh, Ebony mentioned um, those uh, continued um, on ramps that go on to graduate. For example, at one of our local state four-year schools, we have what's called the GAP 4 plus 1, which is an accountancy program where students start at Irvine Valley College. They transfer to the four-year as an accounting major, business major. They are guaranteed admission. There's a whole lot of support and a cohort experience. And then they are after they transfer, they're able to finish a one-year master's in accountancy, which is like the four-plus-one uh, model. So I think community colleges are starting to, um, and hopefully our our four-year brethren, and and frankly, sometimes just because of their own you know um, priorities and initiatives, to to increase the number of students of color, first-gen. Uh, non-traditional students I mean we're the pipeline to that so that's a big important piece and then the other the other part that I think has been touched on is that we truly have a um, an ability to drive and really impact the local economy and especially now as we talk about you know what what will the economy you know look like in a post-pandemic world and and when you look at you know workforce development, whether it's retraining, recertification, um responding to middle skilled jobs, industry-driven, short-term career ed certificates, we can do that. And we can do that extremely well. And that is an area that um the four-year schools you know don't really um, um you know specialize in. And then lastly, um many states, and I know in California we've um, experimented with allowing a limited number of community colleges to offer a baccalaureate degree in specific disciplines that do not necessarily compete with the four-year institution. So it might be something that is not um, widely offered at a four-year or in um, uh, maybe a very very rural part of the state that doesn't have a local four-year school in terms of access. So um, I know that there's advocacy in California to expand that beyond a pilot program, make it permanent, and allow more institutions to do that. And I know many states, community colleges are offering baccalaureate. I think that's a, that's an evolution um, in terms of where I think we're headed. Um, but, you know, I I feel a little biased because um, I, I feel like our students again doesn't matter where they are in their in their preparation and their mindset. It's it's a it's a just I think the place that should be the first stop for for almost all students.
1: Yeah, no, I love that you said that. In terms of you know having perhaps being sort of the continuation of you know this is this high school and then there's you know up, uh, you know a community college pathway um, for all students and so. You know, one of the things that many of us heard during the the election cycle this year was this idea of of free community college. Um, So I wondered if you can just just shed some light of what what does that mean? And, you know, what does it mean for the people that you all serve? Yeah. Case, do we want to start with you? Sure.
0: So. And I have not looked at the most recent versions of this because they they keep changing, and there have been different ways of proposing what free community college means. Is it last dollar after federal aid comes in? Is it last dollar after student aid comes in? You know, who does it apply to? And so there are always some questions around that. But you know, what we're learning and what we learned in the industrial revolution was opening up K to twelve education for everybody and being free was a smart thing for the economy because we needed more trained people who could do more things, and what we know is that a high school education does not get you nearly as far, mm-hmm. right, so mm-hmm. opening up more post-secondary education or post-secondary education at the, in that same way has real societal benefits, you know, more and more of the family sustaining um, professions require post-secondary education of some type, and kind of as Debbie noted that that could be a degree that could be you need a transfer a baccalaureate degree that could be you need certificates that will get you something very specific um, We also know that in the the most recent uh, well in the in the great recession in two thousand eight and two thousand nine or in the most recent recession, having a college credential helps re- reduces the likelihood of unemployment during these times of economic crisis right and so they're huge. Societal benefits of having a trained workforce. There are huge individual benefits of getting more people into the pipeline that will help them be successful and open up their eyes. There are also more democratic benefits, and I do not mean R versus D. I mean thinking about um, people who can, uh, who have what general education, a good general ed- educational offers, who can kind of identify when what they're reading on Facebook that Aunt Tilly sent to you is silliness and helping perhaps to reverse the trend of truth being optional, um, which we've seen a lot in popular media, and that's something that very much scares me. So I think there's, there's a lot of potential benefits to free community college.
2: I was going to add that in. I, I welcome that in California, the legislature for the last several years has funded uh, college promise programs so that any student, if they come right out of high school and are enrolled full time, regardless of family income, the first two years of community college um, is free in terms of the enrollment fees. And frankly, our enrollment fees are probably one of the lowest in, in the country. But having said that, you know we, we do know the reality of the demographics of the students in our state. And even that for many is a, is fi- a financial obstacle. So I do welcome free um, college programs because I think what it does is eliminates that particular financial barrier for many students. But frankly, I think that's really the first step. Um, You know, that's one aspect of college attendance and college cost. I think I'm seeing um, a a, a continuous uh, investment in zero-cost textbook programs, open educational resources, to help address the issue of textbook costs. Um, Most of our colleges um, with state assistance funding and and local um, uh, general fund uh, commitments have basic needs center, food pantries, uh, housing affordability assistance. Knowing that one part of the price tag, which I welcome is not sufficient, and even for students, the way the way the formulas are calculated in California, the cost of attendance doesn't truly reflect the overall cost of living expenses. So for many students, it still becomes a challenge, which is probably one reason we are seeing more and more students attending part-time because they are working 20, 30 plus hours. And it's shifting the... Pipeline of what back in the day might have been mostly a traditional student population that came right out of high school full time, to one that is attending to you know their own family and other financial needs. So whatever we do at the state and federal level to enhance that, whether it's increasing the Pell Grant um, uh, award, I mean, I think this administration is going to be particularly with the first lady very, very. Uh, uh, good for community colleges um, nationally, and uh, I think all of those efforts uh, really help us to think about the barriers that often are in place that make it um, prohibitive for many students.
3: I I echo what each of my colleagues said, but I guess um, the only other I think I would mention this. I, I do believe this is gonna happen um during this administration um in a, a far more uh, broader, you know, sense. Um we we know there's a couple dozen states that already have uh free tuition. Um but I think what has to happen is um and there's you know been some recent attention uh regarding this there's a new report from uh, American Institutes Research um that is uh criticizing what we do have in the way of of these programs is not necessarily being adult um learner friendly in the sense mm-hmm. of much of what we have seen play out to date. Again, and, and for us, the three of us, we're very much sensitive to things being four-year centric. And this is another thing that for free college has really, you know, we hear the mm-hmm. nomenclature of free community college. A lot of these promise programs, um, a good number of them are about, uh, you know, four-year institutions, at least a quarter of them. Um, and then for those that aren't and are focused on community colleges, it's, it's really the case where they're focused on these eight, and even though we know we're headed toward the cliff where that kind of drops off, but they're still focused on these 18 year olds, no lag time, first time in any institution, going full time. Mm-hmm. And so it's not meeting the need. And back to what Kay said about, so as you think about who our learners are and the, the variation in terms of, well, where does, where does it kick in? Is this a last dollar? At what point? You know before this or or after that, um and you have all of these other kind of things relative to childcare care cost or mm-hmm. transportation um other education related expenses that even in lieu of free college, certain segments are still not able to to um take advantage uh, of it and so I think that as the national conversation expands so too uh, should be an expansion and we need to call outside the frame as to who this can best serve. And and especially when we think about adult learners that one have never had any post, have had no experience or engagement with post-secondary. And then for that vast majority, that ne- neglected majority of some college and no degree, right? So mm-hmm. how do we use it to have them think about Reskilling, upskilling, retooling, and as a means of getting them in, not just these 18 year olds that just are fresh out of high school.
1: Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate that you sort of, um, broke it down like that. Cause, you know, when we think about like sort of like the, the free, right? Free community college, it's not, that's, that's not going to fix it. Right. And so free.
3: It's discounted. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> just like when um people say, you know, you, you're at a state institution, you know, I'm like, Yeah, we state located, not always stay supported, right? Like that's different <laughs> too, right? You right, know, as right. we see this disinvestment in higher ed in many states. Um and just like open door doesn't mean open access. So we gotta really kinda interrogate some of those those um ways yes. in which we describe these these measures.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yes, no, I appreciate that. I think, um, for many of us that, um, just hear it, don't, you know, unpack the nuances of that. So, so thank you for that. And, and just, you know, sort of a a related note, you know, in terms of, um, you know, COVID, you know, what, what were some of the lessons that community college gained from the COVID pandemic? I know many of our institutions are, are, you know, rearing back getting back to, you know, on campus. And um, I don't know if we've taken the time to just sort of pause and think about, we don't want to go to the ways that we were normally operating before. What can we do um, mm-hmm. take advantage of an opportunity to think about new ways? So I wondered if you all could share a little bit about, about that. So John, do you want to get us started? Yeah,
2: yeah. It, in several of <clears throat> the virtual chats with the president that I hosted, with faculty and classified professionals, and certainly did it with our managers. Um, you know, have had conversations to help people reflect and think about the ways that the pandemic helped us to think and respond differently in how we provide um, uh, telelearning uh, support. And that there have been some good things that I would hope we don't just hit the reset button and and go back to the status quo um, from an instructional perspective, uh, my former institution i you know I remember over the years faculty who said we will never teach in a distance ed. This is not consistent with our discipline and our pedagogy and 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 you know what did COVID do? It forced everybody into an online environment. Granted, not everyone mastered it beautifully, <laughs> and and people just began to push themselves out of their comfort zones with the technology, the tools, the instructional support. Um, so in some ways, I feel like what it has also done is it has helped many students. I will tell you at my institution prior to the pandemic only 18 percent of our instructional schedule was DE online. We can never go back to that low number because what it's done and and I can validate this while it's maybe um, anecdotal with conversations with students over this past year through our drive-through events that for many students particularly those who are working and are part-time They now found that they could move quickly in terms of degree to completion because we had the full gamut of all of our requirements and courses available online. So I think think the pandemic, frankly, really um, allowed us and our faculty in particular to experiment with this new modality and to learn ways that they're still going to want to incorporate maybe some hybrid aspects of, of um, what they do. I mean, to think that our chemistry colleagues were like a, a year and a half ago trying to figure out how were they going to do, you know, successful uh, demonstration of learning in an online format for, for a chemistry lab, and people figured it out. Uh, they They found ways to do it. The other thing, and so I, I'm obviously focusing on the good. There's also a downside to all this, but I did want to say that student engagement and participation, we've seen a tremendous increase, whether they were workshops, counseling appointments, support services, tutoring, uh, town halls, um, you know, and so now we have folks are in our library, in our career center, saying, In terms of an access perspective we've got to continue to offer much of our support in an online modality because the expectation particularly for uh, students who are part-time and working to have to drop everything and come physically on campus when we have the way to reach and touch and be impactful I think needs to happen and then um, the other thing I would just say is that I mean just so beautiful, the way we all mobilized to do laptop loaners, to do Wi-Fi hotspots, to do a series of drive-through, to provide uh, food assistance and other kinds of uh, mental health support. But there was, in my opinion, a a huge downside. For so many of our students, the sense of isolation, the lack of engagement. For some, um, uh, an asynchronous learning style where they kind of had to do it on their own worked for convenience, for others, they lost a sense of community, of structure. We've had to ramp up our mental health support. Um, We've seen a decline in the state, I think nationally in enrollment. We were pretty flat last year, we're pretty fortunate, but the students we're losing, I think are the students that are the most vulnerable to begin with. And then of course, um, there's the challenge of our students. When we did a fall and spring survey we found we were doing a good amount of um, of intervention and support in providing the technology, the hardware, but for many of our students, they were still struggling, living in multi-generational families, not having a quiet place to study, competing with a wifi connection, and just feeling isolation. And so I, I, I do believe that the pandemic taught us the best, also taught us to look at where our students Um, we're most in need and um, I think as we I think we're still redefining what we're going to look like this fall and let alone the spring I'm hopeful that we do pick up those lessons learned and and apply them uh, in a way that helps us to think differently about how we deliver deliver educationally purposeful um, learning environments. I have a oh
1: I'm sorry Susan no, go ahead, go ahead. A
0: couple yeah. points following up from John, because I, I really uh, underscored. Well, I mean, I think the nationwide drop was about 10 percent in community colleges nationwide. Uh, that's roughly it. If it was eight or 12, I forgive me. Um, and I think that's exactly what John is saying is the most vulnerable chose not to go to college that year. Yep. It was scary. It was unknown. If you're already on that edge, eh, maybe not. Um, so we I'm worried that we lost a, a whole High school graduating classes students who may not come back ever right that 's one thing that very much concerns me on on the the positive side you know the side of never letting a good crisis go to waste um, in December two thousand and nineteen I called together a meeting uh, that would happen on march eleventh two thousand and twenty right so I called this meeting together because We didn't have any fully online degree programs. We had a a lot of online courses, and we were about to kind of trip over into some of our degrees will now go fully online. We don't want this to just happen and stumble into it. We want to be intentional, purposeful. Let's do this thoughtfully, and we were going to um, plan it. So on March 11, 2020, at 8 a.m., there was a conference room of about 18 people, maybe. Vice presidents, cabinet members, deans, student affairs leaders, publicity and marketing people, and three whiteboards the size of the one in my office. By 11 o'clock, it was written top to bottom with all the stuff we had to do to get online going for fully online programs the way we wanted to. Around 11 o'clock, all the cabinet members in the meetings, our phones were bouncing and we were called to cabinet. There was a COVID question, something happened on campus. We all went home by two o'clock that day and then we closed like the rest of the country. So, you know, we had this three whiteboards full of stuff we needed to do before we could be fully online and we were hoping for fall 21 <laughs> and yet 9 days later we were fully online. I mean, we right. had, I think we had the most ironic story of covid. What it taught us though was, you know, that's definitely not the way to do it on purpose. There were lots of bumps in the road, lots of things we had to figure out. We parts of our enrollment pipeline just didn't work online at that moment. Some professors who had purposely never taught online, now suddenly had to. So definitely not the ideal on-ramp, but what we learned is we can do this. So now we have to do it because, although lots of students still will want face-to-face and will um, succeed better in that environment, the for a student body who is facing um, multiple commitments, uh, child responsibilities, work responsibilities, so much more than quote unquote, the mythical traditional undergraduate student, online is such an amazing opportunity that we owe it to our students to do more of it and keep doing it better. And I think we've learned that we can.
2: Agreed. Mm
3: -hmm. I guess my, you know, the only thing I offer just in piggybacking off of what just shared about online is to say that, um, you know, some of the lessons learned um, while we, Know that we all had to quickly pivot is that we want to be attentive to, um, thinking about and disaggregating the data to understand that there has been disparate impact of, of COVID and not just COVID, was like racism was a pandemic before COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have parallel pandemics. There's been a cluster of crises in terms of leadership, um, for folks out West, the climate. Um you know the economy for us writ large alongside right a health crisis that's global um and a racial reckoning and you know um as I think about um so colleague Linda garcia, who's the e d uh of um of cesi at at u t austin our um uh, center for community college um student engagement. And some of their work specific to community colleges and, and the impact of, of COVID, like their data is definitely showing that um, you know, Black and Latinx and Indigenous students, Native American students, um were more likely to report um having trouble keeping up, right, with with their classes um in this pivot to to online. Um, you know, and so in contrast to their their uh you know, white counterparts in terms of the coursework. I know on some of the work we've begun with um Urban Institute through our CTE uh collab, so career tech ed um uh collaborative learning online. Uh we're also seeing some of that play out and, and wanting to be intentional about now that you know as, as Case and John mentioned, that we see that we could do it. We want to do it, but now we can come in with the intentionality of not just having to do the quick pivot, but to be purposeful in terms of making sure that we embed equity consciousness in, in how we do online in terms of, you know, are there culturally relevant materials embedded? Um, You know, how are we using culturally responsive pedagogical approaches Um, as we disaggregate the data and look at who the participants are in these online settings um, as well, um, who might be struggling in terms of digital literacy um, pieces, broadband access, the logistics of of that beyond just the, the content of the course and and working with and thinking about how do we queue up technical assistance? How do we do coaching with faculty? um and you know program leaders around the bundling and the sequencing of the courses um and what would make sense about what might be gateway pieces and how do we reorganize when those come in so that students don't get cooled out uh (laughs) when we think about stuff with math particularly if it's not applied math or how Mm -hmm. we replace it and maybe have a stack or something else correct um how do we um you know encourage and i know um in California, there's y'all are, you know, kind of a litmus test of what we can aspire to in some ways when it comes to getting ahead of it is the expectation in many cases that faculty, um, do some, some again, um, some that equity walk with the talk, right? And so are you actually creating a syllabus that is equity centered? Um, and just because you and your institution say you're equity minded, equity mindedness actually doesn't equate to being equity action oriented. Like right. you can think about it. You can have the awareness. You can have the knowledge. But that doesn't mean you have the disposition, the wherewithal, let alone the action step. So yeah. how do we, you know, as a, a, um, one of my, my favorite colleague friends, um, Michael Baston, who, um, is a community college president. He's always telling folks, you know, you need to uh their statements and then there's the steps, and you need to step be you know beyond your statements. <laughs> and so I think COVID has taught us that, especially in lieu of it happening parallel to um the racial mm-hmm. pandemic, right? Is um enough with the platitudes, right? Mm-hmm. So what is it that we're doing when we talk about how all of this plays out? And then another thing that um Again, kind of going back to the free community college piece, um, not apples to apples, but who also is again being overlooked are adult learners. This 25 plus, you know, um learner, the one that needs to upskill, reskill, retool. Um, you know, we're seeing that where the data is showing that the pandemic when compared to other you know age cohorts um, of students um, are struggling more right because their incomes have been drastically impacted in a different way than our traditional college age student who is an emerging adult but still has mom and dad as a you know a soft mm-hmm. land and so that we gotta we gotta think about you know these household financial situations um because that has been um a large part of the students that we've lost um at our colleges. Um, you know, because I got to keep lights on. I got to put food Mm -hmm. on the table. And, um, you know, I have dependents. And so, yeah, I, I, I can't re-enroll, um, for spring. Um, yeah, so we got to keep all that, um, forefront. Now, I love that you, um, just reminded us that
1: it's, we're, we're operating in four pandemics, not just one, um, simultaneously. And so, um, the, the compounding impact of that on our students and the fact that we say a lot of rhetoric around equity mindedness, equity, mm-hmm. um, particularly, our, you know, we saw that the, the statements and, um, how do we get beyond sort of the per, per, performativity of the yes. rhetoric and how do we act? How does that get institutionalized in our practice in our teaching and in ways that hold people accountable, right? Um, mm-hmm. to those um, values. So, but yes, um, thank you for that. So um, I have devised some questions for each of you. So um, I'm gonna ask you each to just to sort of take a step. And know John, you are a community college president. So I wanted just to see um, what are sort of some of the more challenges and the rewarding aspects of your role, but also your emerging HSI. And I wanted to see how that designation um Plays a role in how you're leading your institution right now.
2: Thank you. Um, as I think of what are some of the challenges that I often um, struggle with as a as a president, I think navigating the often competing expectations between external stakeholders, internal stakeholders. And, and granted, <clears throat> even within internal stakeholders, <clears throat> it's not homogeneous in any way in terms of expectations and, and where you put your focus. Uh, one of the things that often frustrates me are statewide policies and regulatory oversight, at least in California. Uh, community colleges grew out of the K-12 system. And when you look at our ed code and our mandates, we are so much more aligned in the K-12 system than we are with our higher ed partners and things that, you know, formulas and mandates that just, uh, you know, just drive everybody crazy because they might have been well intended at some point in time, but just, um, you know, seem so irrelevant in, in, in our current um, uh, environment. I think, frankly, <clears throat> for me, what I have found most rewarding as a vice president of student services, and I, I can say that it's been equally rewarding as a college president, and I, I kind of alluded to this earlier, <clears throat> excuse me, is the, the the role that we all have, the role that I have as the president, particularly in setting the vision, direction, and expectation, Particularly for designing learning environments, as I said earlier, where it's designed so that every student can experience uh, a success. And that puts the onus on us as educators. Um, and, and part of that is uh creating and sustaining institutional culture that you know validates um students where they are, that affirms their sense of belonging, that you know we're doing um i love some of the aspects and 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 the, the 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 critical pieces that um ebony just shared but you know that we are looking and reexamining at whether it's our institutional policies our procedures our structures um and and really asking um you know, are we reviewing them critically through an equity lens? Are there unintended consequences? What role do we have to make sure that those inequities no longer exist? And how is it that we can play a role in transforming our educational institutions so that it doesn't um, continue to marginalize students? And so for me, I find that level of work extremely um, gratifying um, especially, you know, when you're in a role where you have the ability to create the space and the messaging and the expectations um, to, to to move an institution in that direction. Um, and then I, I guess um, you mentioned, um, you know, we're, so Irvine Valley College is a minority serving institution. We're an PC, um institution. Um, In a couple of years, uh, if the trajectory goes um, as we're uh, as we're planning, uh, you know, we'll we'll be able to apply for Hispanic serving institution status. I think the way that that also shapes the way uh, I lead is that um, I try to be as authentic when I come into a space that it's part of my lived experience and that ultimately is how I lead. And so, you know, just recognizing, you know, the intersection of my identities as an immigrant, as a first generation, as a Latino, gay, cisgender male. I mean, those are all aspects that shape and influence my experience and my educational journey. um, You know, I didn 't see a lot of people that looked like me that represented my multiple identities, particularly in in leadership roles or faculty roles and so i I frankly as uh, you know even in high school community college, I never imagined that I could be shaping and influencing educational environments and never imagined that I could be where i 'm at. So I I do feel that um, you know part of my my work is about uh, inspiring others, instilling hope, um, and whenever we shatter you know any any barriers, regardless of whether it's who we are, who, you know, I think it really opens up um, a sense of opportunity and hope for students. And I'll just I'll just share quickly. Then I'm running out of time. Um, when almost a year ago when they announced my appointment and they had, you know, my picture and, and whatever on the on the on the banner on the web page, I I received an email from a student who I've never met. It went to the gener the generic president's office email. He happened to have the same last name as I did, Hernandez, and and emailed me and just said, I saw the web page and I've never seen another. Latino in a leadership role. And I just want you to know how this has inspired me to know that I can mm-hmm. achieve everything that I'm working hard to do. And that maybe someday I can also have a doctorate in front of my last mm-hmm. name. And, you know, that to me, I, I realized that's you know, to me, that symbolizes the hope that we bring in these roles and the way that we're able to inspire others and particularly the students that we're serving. So that's how I bring my authentic self into, um, you know, these leadership roles.
1: Thank you. Your story gave me chills. Like literally, I was like, that's is, is, is super powerful. And uh, the fact that you're impacting so many um and inspiring so to, to follow in your, in your footsteps. So thank you for that. Uh, Ebony, I'm gonna turn over to you for a little bit. Um as a faculty member and a researcher who examines, um, community colleges in multiple ways, what, what has surprised you and, and about the ways in which scholars are researching community colleges? Maybe how should scholars be approaching community college research? I know, I'm not a, but easy question, right?
3: <laughs> it, yeah, it, it is in the sense that, okay, so here's, you know me long enough. Um, <laughs> Case has a good sense of me too. And, and John, I know we'll appreciate this. I, I'm going to call a thing a thing. Um, So here's the thing. Uh, We got a lot of Johnny come lateness, okay? Three of us ain't new to this. We true to this. Um, but we got a lot of Johnny come lately. And so by that I mean that um what is happening now in the sense of some of the research around community colleges, um dare I say opportunistic from some in the research community. Um, you know, so we have a a, a new administration, in particular, you know, our float is, is unapologetically, unabashedly, you know, uh, a advocate, a champion for community colleges, and so we we see that the pendulum is swinging where additional attention, resources, and the like are are going to be channeled toward toward that end. But we saw this happen before, right? So during the Obama administration, those first two terms, all of a sudden, you know, community colleges out of Cinderella the ball, and I remember getting emails from some folks where it was like, hey, hey, so can you send me a reading list? And you know, I wanna I wanna do some community college stuff. I wanna, <laughs> you know, and I am like, oh, before you weren't thinking about community colleges, <laughs> but you see that there's an RFP over here and an RFP over there. <laughs> and so now you wanna couple up with people who've either been doing this, right? Um, where this is not something new in their in their portfolio but this is kind of the mainstay and centerpiece of it um and trying to catch up so that said there's some when you talk about um how should people approach community college research won't be authentic just don't come through with this interest convergence <laughs> where it's mm-hmm. kind of apparent that um you know you're just on the bandway um, yeah. because this is you know and we see that with stem sometimes like people just doing stuff where that's what's hot. Um, you know, that's what, you know, because um, I've been around long enough where there's many a conference short of going to, uh, uh, you know, Council for the Study of Community Colleges or AACC, like Community College, Lead for Innovation, Community College specific spaces where um, peripheral at best. Right. Mm-hmm. You 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 lucky if you could count past one hand how many sessions across three and four days or around community college matters, right? Mm-hmm. Um again, outliers to that would be ACPA, um, in the sense that they have a nearly six decade old commission on two year, well it's not two year student development. Um, you know, our student development in two-year colleges anymore. It's just community colleges, right? At this point. But the the point is, for me, that was organic. And me being, I felt like, you know, you know, I know Tiffany had to say she's a, she's a black unicorn, but I was like, I, I'm unicorn with you, girl because coming <laughs> into the space of like, you know, Ash back in the day, the Association for Study mm-hmm. of Higher Ed, or or other, you know, of these professional organizations. We were never centered as mattering. We were always on the margins as community college scholars. And so because we had never been um, a part of what was the dominant discourse, right? Um, yeah, I'm giving people side eye now that are kind of like, ooh, I'm in, I do transfer, I do this. No, they dabble. Um, right. So that kind of thing. <laughs> So when you say, uh, what can folks do, one is come from a place of authenticity and care about the work, um, and not interest convergence. Two, or being opportunistic, um, two is there's none but space, room, and opportunity. Okay. You want to get in, fit in? You can make a splash. Don't dip your toe, dive. You can get some. Okay. So we need lots of stuff that folks can <laughs> attend to. Who, who's dissertating out there? Listen, listen. Okay, <laughs> I'm gonna give you a little, I'm gonna give you a little sneak peek. Okay, we got enrollment crisis right now, right? We just mm-hmm. talked about a cluster of crisis right now. So what's happening in the community college space about that? Because again, what leads is often this four-year-centric thing. Camp, campus climate issues? Come on. Mm-hmm. Community colleges got racialized reality. But we don't hear about that, even though if you unpack the data, uh, my colleague Luke Wood and I, um did some work where we looked at, you know, issues of like crosswalking, anti-defamation league data with FBI crime um statistics reports, um, and then looking at what we have in the way of what the uh Department of Ed is getting from the colleges. And we're seeing the same trajectory that's happening in K-12 or four year for the two-year sector that hate is on a rise on these campuses. And when you unpack the, um, the data in terms of reported hate crimes that the highest category, the leading category are racial hate crimes. Okay. There's some research for you. We need work on executive leadership and training these professional, um, training programs and the changing of the guard. We had what we thought was going to be this bubble where all the boomers were going to make an exit. We had the great recession. What was projected as this exit? didn't readily occur so then there was a bottleneck in terms of some of the advancement opportunities unless people are really mobile um but now we're getting to a point where we need to look at that again um in terms of this changing of the guard because there's um it too often is it where higher ed programs don't have a class on community colleges Mm -hmm. let alone a suite of offerings around the community college space or um, socialize their students in the understanding that there are very viable career pathways for self-engagement, fulfillment, and where you can really make a difference in terms of students being able to self-actualize, that that's not being prioritized in a lot of these programs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's missed opportunities there. I'm thinking about Nicole Hannah-Jones and boards. Yes. Okay, ooh, Guess what? They real white in community college spaces too, y'all. Study some of these boards. You know, if we're talking about diversity walk, diversity talk, and that kind of thing. Um, what are the trends in terms of what we see relative to board appointments? Because there's a lot of politics to that that's happening too. Um completion data, you know, doing work around not treating community colleges. Um you know, in a way that is punitive, uh, when they are playing such a huge part in the success story of so many students and so really kind of interrogating and poking at that bear around how, um, you know, the, um, the, uh, college student board, like how, how do we, uh, look at success and who is completing and what's an the nutrition and do you have to have, you know, no time off continuous enrollment, only be full-time, because that's not our student, right? Mm-hmm. So we need more research around that. Um I can go on like a litany where if I started, if I had a scroll and then we unrolled it, it would thump you on your toe and then keep on going, you know, across <laughs> the floorboard because it's that much uh stuff that um we really can attend to because this has often been an area that's overlooked or treated as an mm-hmm. afterthought. Um, but there's a core of us, and we know who mm-hmm. each other are, mm-hmm. that, um, you know, um, often I had this this thing where I'd be joking about, you seen those Capital One commercials, um, Jennifer Gardner, um, yes. you know, my my boy Sam Jackson, they be like, what's in your wallet? Well, guess what? When all I was coming up with was Lent, it was, it was only Lent in my wallet, this was what I was passionate about and going to attend to, so... We need other folks that want to be champions, regardless of the the change of regimes (laughs) in terms of administrations or who wants to, to be nice to community colleges or not today, because we know we matter. And so it's about, you know, getting from those margins and centering the institutions to matter. And I guess that's why I'm so passionate about it is because community colleges have been among the most marginalized of institutions within the higher ed realm seeking to do the most with the least for those that are the most minoritized in society so yeah yes. yeah you said a lot
1: that was a lot yes but it had to be said it had to be in here call um, a thing a thing yes, we, called, we called the thing a thing um so i appreciate that um oh, that the list yes um and then yes the long list so um so, Kate, the question that I have for you, um, our audience in this podcast is largely largely student affairs educators. What should our field know about aspiration and goals of community college students, and what can the field of student affairs do better to support student affairs administrators and practitioners?
0: So, I think in, in the major student affairs organizations, there is still, um, they're still centering traditional four-year residential students, right? Um, And they, and many programs and and sessions you might attend at those conferences will still have this de facto assumption that students live on campus, they're full-time. That's that's not even really the norm in four-year institutions now, but it's not even close to the norm for two-year institutions. So I think really understanding who community college students are, right? more likely to be working, more likely to be parents, more likely to be non-traditional age, more likely to be students of color. Um, that's going to be a key factor in that. Uh, now, I'll also say that sometimes the mark can be uh, missed a little bit in that, you know, so a lot, a lot of um, conversations happen around social justice. Uh, ACPA has their extraordinary um, uh Uh, imperative for racial, strategic imperative for racial justice, wonderful, important things. What I don't hear as part of that, and I think should be, is thinking about student success. Because if we're talking about racial justice, but not having a conversation of what are the um, equity gaps in terms of disparities between different groups of students crossing the stage at the end of their time at your institution, right? Um, What are the differences in Are they walking away, with or without a degree, how much debt? You know, we have a huge student debt crisis in the country, and it saddles people for years. And if it saddles you without a degree, that is a huge burden for decades, right? You can't get out of that debt. That is, um, you can't get out of it with bankruptcy. So I would like to see a greater tying together of some of these concepts of thinking about student success, what supports need to be in place um, in this concept of social justice work, because I think they are really connected. Uh, I would also say that, um, you know, uh, student development theory, uh, you know, I, I was recently, at, I was at a conference that I, I co-chaired a few years ago, or was a part of a few years ago, which um, talked about student development at the two-year college, because so often two-year colleges, um, and I'll be curious if, 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 John, you hear this too, we didn't do that student development stuff, we wanted to graduate as though it's separate, right? If you're helping students grow intellectually, emotionally, um, interpersonally, interculturally, those skills are also gonna help them cross that finish line. Oh, and also be more successful whether they're going on to a four year institution or whether they're going on to the world of work, right? These are not these are not things we should disentangle. These are things we should think about holistically, um, specifically. I also wanna add that I think the world of community college, and community college research has a lot to teach our four-year counterparts. So there's, um, I wrote about this in, a, in an article in, uh, about campus. There's a great work done by the Community College Research Center at Teachers College led by Tom Bailey. A whole body of research called Guided Pathways, really thinking about how you bring students in, how you want to make sure that there are key services that you want to ensure that most or all students take advantage of. Career services are awesome and career inventories can really help people clarify and define and lock into a goal that matters to them. But when no one uses them until six weeks before they graduate because they need a job suddenly, right, you've missed, you've missed the boat. And all those people who, who had treated before because they were on a path that made no sense for them. So Guided Pathways is is marvelous and I'm not going to even try to uh, discuss it now. Um, but it it is holistic. It thinks about The academic, the student affairs, the wraparound kind of supports you need, how you design a college experience that leads more people from the beginning to a successful outcome. I've never heard of that concept talked um, directly or indirectly at a four-year environment. Um, And it's it's excellent. And I have a, a colleague at Teachers College now who says they're talking about that concept at Teachers College, which is exclusively a graduate school. Mm-hmm. So the notion that it's not would not be helpful for an institution uh, saddens me, and I think we we have so much to teach and share that um, uh, to Ebony's point, I'm glad ACPA has a strong uh, commission for for the two-year college, but I, I, I even there the voice isn't as loud as I think it could be, or is not as heard as I think it could be to better the the organization and the profession. So those are some of my thoughts around that.
1: No, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. And and you bring into the space there's a notion of that, um, that, uh, you know, community colleges are, have this, our assets. And we need to treat community colleges as as assets and within the four-year institutions. Um,
0: Definitely,
1: um, you need to see that. So, so as we, as we conclude this podcast, this podcast is called Student Affairs Now. So I'd love to hear quickly what each of you are pondering, questioning, troubling now. So um, I'll start with Casey.
0: So and I I can't say this is particularly exclusive to community colleges. This is higher ed in the US, uh, Mm -hmm. as we're in a time where alternative facts are indistinguishable in some corners from researched, verifiable information. We're at a time where um, politics is directly interfering in what is taught institutions of higher education. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we're allowed, you know, the, the notion that governors and um, legislators are are getting involved in curriculum, right? Not saying it'd be great to study this because we have a labor industry. I don't mean that, but in sort of starting to censor, right? Mm-hmm. Starting to really... Uh, do that. I'm I'm nervous about its impact on democracy, about our ability to really prepare young people and non-traditional people. <laughs> Ebony, I, I heard your words in my head before you said them, right? So, but our ability to prepare our graduates and our former students to, to engage effectively in democracy and to identify um, well, call a thing a thing to identify the BS when it comes across their Facebook feed or their Twitter feed and realize that this is not useful information, right? We saw how this played out in the pandemic um, and it's harming all of us. So, these are some things that I think are the big challenges. Student affairs has a role in that. I am unsure what it is, but we're going to keep fighting the good fight on it.
1: Thank you. Yeah.
2: Well, I will just focus it from my institution's perspective and where we're spending a lot of our energy um, this coming year. And again, I'm just coming up on my first year anniversary, but one of the things that it was very clear in the search process was that this institution was looking for leadership from the top all the way, you know, through the organization, but particularly from college president to lead us in a um intentional um direction where there was already a commitment to student equity um, social justice, and to really Re-examine our institutions in in a more critical way than had been done before, and a lot of wonderful work had been happening organically prior to my arrival. And this past year, I think we've spent some some good space and time having conversations. Um, you know, uh, having uh, faculty participate in in cohort experiences. Through the USC Race and Equity um, Initiative. Um, you know, we use the uh, from equity talk to equity walk as a as a primer for intentional um, conversations and planning. And so I'm I'm I think we have a unique opportunity. And I know that there are there are pivotal points in, in history that you know we probably have failed. To act, um, and I and I feel that, frankly, if we don't truly put into place some action-oriented work, then all we're doing is um, playing lip service. And I get the sense, at least from you know from a very critical core at my institution, that that we're ready, we're poised, and so I'm, I'm giving a lot of thought about what my role is in being front and center. And that's what it's been this last year, you know, I'm not bringing in a consultant to lead this work. I'm leading this work. And um, so I'm I'm optimistic. I know that it will not be um, easy work. It never is. But, um, and knowing that we're all in a very different place in our equity journeys, but I'm really looking forward to, uh, you know, to some focused, Action-oriented um, work this coming year, and just to really lay the groundwork for that, and certainly, you know, we, you know, everything that happens nationally finds its way one way or another on our college campuses. There are obviously things that are troubling me. The case already uh, touched on a couple, um, you know, and, uh, and and that's kind of the the, the the political environment and dynamic that we have to navigate as well. Um, And sometimes, you know, it may feel like our hands might be tied by our boards, by, you know, um, policies and things of that nature. But if we're not going to be bold, and if we're not going to um, really lead in the way we need to, I just feel like it'll be a missed opportunity once again.
0: Mm. Thank you. Okay
3: wow yeah um hmm. well i guess there's this past year and a half i think has presented many of us um you know practitioners and scholars um those we serve with a lot of soul searching It's. i mean it's just been a lot people are carrying a lot they're holding a lot um and, and so, um, as we move into this next AY, the academic year, um, I think we, we still have to, um, extend some grace, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, in many regards. Um, and I think that, uh, like my colleagues, I, I do have some concerns about, um, what is quickening in terms of, uh, you know, quickening and pace and um, trending in terms of these statewide bands that are, are targeting um, teaching the truth. Because I'm, you know, my thing is um, when we talk about calling a thing a thing, um truth hurts. Truth can't hurt, right? But you can't have, you can't expect people to be healthy and whole and you can't have healing um, or reconciliation without truth. And so, um, I think this next year, certainly in many classrooms across the country, um, you know, and I, it was recently, I think, uh, it was some summer session classes at a few, I saw headlines at a few different community colleges that were paused and or canceled, you know, um, where, you know, I was a, a instructor in, I think it was Oklahoma where she said, I didn't even mention critical race theory in my class, Mm -hmm. right? But, and so I think that there's a way in which, um, CRT is, is misunderstood, is being co-opted as a concept. Um, and that, um, the way in which these bills are misconstruing, you know, this has, is, is, uh, we gotta, really prompt people to, to think in a more nuanced way about what it's going to be because it's a chilling effect I feel that's going to happen on teaching and learning across the board um, if this happens because think about the how paradoxical or how ironic it is that we can have just passed Juneteenth but we actually can't mm-hmm. really teach about the antecedents to why <laughs> we would even have such a holiday, right? Because there's the censorship on, oh, don't say anything about slavery. Don't say anything about inequity. Don't say anything about race, racism. Don't mention certain gender identities or sex, you know, like it's this whole sweeping, you know, kind of a thing, which is so interesting because um much of the focal point has never squarely on the fact that the canon is you know part of how dominance functions as jason Katz says is is by remaining unexamined Mm -hmm. and so we're at a really critical juncture where there's pushback from school districts all the way through community colleges and universities um that i think is actually going to continue to heighten and so i'm 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 interested in see um where we are um as we move into the fall through the spring of this this next academic year but that said we're going to stay the course uh mm-hmm. as uh tia McNair and and nastelle ben simone we're going to we're going to walk our talk our equity walk our talk um in terms of how we um really try to hold ourselves accountable um because the company I'm in we don't see we don't do this, it's about all of us kind of collectively understanding that um we could ill afford a throwaway group, and we can um not just put the onus on students are victimizing students, but to understand that there are more uh, structural and systemic issues at play so that once we can kind of, you know, get at those layers of the onion of individually and personally or interpersonally and institutionally, then we can start moving the needle and chipping at, because we again, we got to get honest with that though, right? We got to be truthful. Mm -hmm. And so you can't chip away at the structural impediments and the systemic inequities, many of which are um racialized unless we you know come bearing the truth so it's going to be interesting to see how um you know it was one of my favorite quotes is truth will prevail right um so hopefully it will
1: yes thank you for that thank you for leaving us for something for us to think about and 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 i think y'all just gave me a lot of some hope as well as you're leading and you're researching and um your institutions and your students. So thank you. Uh, Thank you again to our panelists. I'm grateful for your time and for being guests with us today at Student Affairs Now. I want to thank our sponsors Anthology. Transform your student experience and advance co-curricular learning with Anthology Engage. With Engage, you're able to easily manage student organizations, efficiently plan events and truly understand student involvement to continuously improve your engagement efforts at your institution. Learn more by visiting anthology.com backslash engage and also like to thank Everfy. Thank you for your support. How will your institution rise to, to reach today's socially conscious generation? These students rate Commitment to safety, well being and inclusion as important as academics and extracurriculars. It's time to reimagine the work of student affairs as an investment, not an expense. For over twenty years, Everfi has been trusted partners with fifteen hundred colleges and universities. With nine efficiency studies behind their courses, you'll have a confidence that you're using the standard of care for student safety and well being with proven results. Transform the future of your institution and community you serve. Learn more at everfi.com backslash student affairs now. Huge shout out to Natalie Ambrosi, the production assistant for this podcast, who makes us all sound and look good. Thank you for listening. Um, if you haven't received weekly newsletters, please what, visit our website and scroll down to the bottom to the homepage to add your email. And while you're at it, check out our archives. Again, I'm Susana Munoz. Thanks for a fabulous guest today who joined us. And to everyone who's listening and watching, make it a great week. Thank you.